and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, after a summer of U-turns, policy failures and fun with cronies, the government is back, back, back at work. But with growing backbencher discontent, policies going off the rails and Chancellor Rishi Sunak waiting in the wings, the question is not what can Boris Johnson achieve, but can he survive this autumn? Speaking of survival, Extinction Rebellion snookered the Saturday papers, prompting a swathe of anger. Where are my recipes? Is this kind of direct action drawing attention to the cause of climate change or undermining it? And with the BBC's new Director General Tim Davey promising more right-wing comedians on our screens, will we have to brace ourselves for Have I Got It's Classical Liberalism Actually For You? <laughs> All this and more in today's podcast. Welcome back to The Bunker. First, the traditional reminder, the next Bunker versus Romaniacs live Zoom is on Thursday, the 24th of September at 8pm. It's open to all Patreon backers and ticket holders for our postponed live show at the Leicester Square Theatre. Search Patreon Bunker to find out more and sign up. We will see you there. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, we have the Chief Executive of Best of Britain, Naomi Smith. Naomi, we're supposed to be the non-Brexit podcast, but the oven-ready deal has exploded in the microwave, hasn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, There's bits of deal all over everything, all on the ceiling. Oh, and in the I mean, cleaning a dirty microwave is never a fun chore. So <laughs> that's a metaphor for Britain, we are fucked. But yeah, since the uh, the Peter Foster scoop in the FT on Monday, uh, the government spinners have been doing their thing, trying to claim that this is not the UK reneging on an international treaty, but uh, inconveniently for them. Jonathan Jones, head of the government's legal department, has now quit over what is being described as a major spat uh, over all of this and Johnson challenging the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Um, And I get, you know, that the average Joe public will not probably be at all vexed about this guy resigning. But it kind of reminds me of um, when Liz Wilmhurst quit over the illegality of the 2003 Iraq war. You know, a lawyer can't in all good conscience work for a client who wishes to subvert the law. Uh, And in this case, the client just happens to be the government. Well, we're going to be doing this in more detail on this week's Romaniacs. Uh, so this one will be will be going nuts on Friday with. But Boris Johnson's given himself an arbitrary deadline of October the 15th to get a deal. Otherwise, supposedly we're going to walk away from talks. On the no deal doomsday clock, how close are we, do you think? I mean, look, it is an arbitrary deadline um, in terms of it being his de- deadline, but it's it's pretty similar to the deadline that the EU have always, always, always said, you know, if we haven't got a deal by mid to late October, there just simply isn't going to be the time for us to ratify it through the 27 uh, other countries. But what is, of course, true is that Johnson has set many deadlines before. You might remember he was saying, oh, I don't want to spend anything beyond the summer doing this. If we haven't got a you know an agreement by July, we'll walk away. So there, of course, is uh, you know, uh, all of that bluff and bluster. But I, you know, it, it, it is fair to say that we are definitely closer Uh, to no deal than ever before. Um, And, you know, I'd urge, therefore, all listeners to use the Best for Britain tool, hey-mp.uk, to write to their MPs, particularly if your MP is a Conservative, because there are lots of Conservative MPs who are pretty unhappy about all of this. Also with us, we have broadcaster, Romaniacs regular and author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Yes, I can finally pronounce it. Nina (laughs) Schick. Hello, Nina. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Good to be here. Good to have you. So the, the, the government has, this government has consistently and rightly condemned China and Russia for reneging on international commitments. This is an international commitment. Does it? What does this do to Britain's standing in the world if we just decide we want to row back and rewrite uh, treaty agreements? 
<laughs> well, obviously, it is terrible for Britain's standing in the world. Let's not forget that this government has been negotiating this deal for years. Um, it was literally Boris Johnson himself who championed it as an oven-ready deal. He passed it through Parliament. And going reneging right now at this last moment is not only going to destroy the UK's relationship with its largest trading partner being the EU, but it's going to send, send a signal to the rest of the world. So the last comment I would make is just how utterly predictable all of this has been. I mean, all of us on this podcast have been saying for years that it might come down to this and that it would be really bad for Britain. And it's almost, you know, I'm even surprised at how almost it's playing out blow for blow, just in terms of the worst possible situation. I'm going to put that to uh, the final member of our panel. It's the editor of LSE's COVID blog, which you can follow at LSE Public Policy, all one big long word. Roz Taylor. Now, Roz is an escapee from the LSE Brexit blog. Roz, was this the plan all along? Just get it over the line and then redo it, rewrite it afterwards? Not necessarily. Uh, the value of the withdrawal agreement to Johnson is not really in what it contains and its import. It's in how he can potentially use it at this stage in the negotiations to extract potential concessions from the EU and to placate his backbenchers and feed Brexiteers ire and distract from the uh, disaster that is his COVID management. So I think it, it's not it's not terribly... It, the, the content of the agreement, because in fact, he didn't read it properly, as we know, and he clearly wasn't conscious of what was in it. it it's, its role and its function is almost symbolic now. Yeah, it's, it's uh, walking away for the sake of being seen to walk away. Yeah, exactly. But the irony is, of course, that everyone has always said that Northern Ireland would be the sticking point in Brexit negotiations, and it continues always to be the central problem, never mind other issues like level playing field, like state aid, nor the other fishy issues that we have going on. <laughs> Northern, Ireland, Northern Ireland is the real problem. And the terrible irony, of course, is that hardly anyone ever mentioned Northern Ireland until the referendum happened. It's been another summer of discontent and another excuse for an argument in our make-it-up-as-you-go-along government. U-turns on exam results and face masks, shambolic messaging over quarantine, backbench grievances on planning reforms and tax plans, and a car crash PMQs for Johnson. It's all happening and it's awfully early for MPs to start wondering if the new Prime Minister looks a little tired. One Tory MP was quoted as saying, we'd like to be in a government that has the impression of being competent. Naomi, uh, these rumblings of discontent amongst Tory backbenchers we are hearing about, are they real? Uh, yes, um, I think it's worth remembering that, you know, and we've talked about it on various podcasts over the last few months, but Johnson didn't want to govern in bad times. And I think that is so obvious now to everybody in his own party, let alone the rest of the country. He was mayor of London during good times you know the olympics there was some kind of post-recession growth happening again relatively affluent times for the capital and he just didn't sign up to be a prime minister having to deal with a pandemic worst recession for hundreds of years and an incredibly complicated brexit and as, as ross says he didn't do detail with the withdrawal agreement last year and, and the complexity of it now um, is his unraveling and I think he wanted his legacy to be the prime minister who had delivered the UK's departure from the EU. And I don't think he had a vision beyond that at all. But recent moves show that he now runs the risk of being the prime minister who destroyed the union. 
Mm. Um, a no-deal Brexit is very far removed from what most Leave voters wanted, let alone the Scots and Northern Irish who didn't want Brexit at all. Um, and the union is going to give him the most angst, especially as we head into the Scottish elections next May. So yes, some of the rumblings from the backbenches definitely are real. We've seen a group of Red Wallers organise themselves this week. They've called themselves the Leveling Up Task Force. And they're all <laughs> concerned about the double whammy of Rona and Brexit doing absolutely nothing to boost the fortunes uh, of their areas. But for the most part, the government is safe. It's probably not going to face any major, major rebellions just yet. It's interesting how, as the, everything looks uh, ropier and ropier, they've retreated into the comfort zone, which is be bolshy with Europe. When in doubt, yeah. be bolshy with Europe. So the fabled majority of 80, is it still the ultimate weapon? Is it still the infinity gauntlet? Or do big majorities give bolshy and peace space to manoeuvre that they might not have had if the, uh, if the majority was a tighter one? I mean, there, there, there probably is some truth in that. And of course, the other thing has been the fact that the MPs haven't been able to caucus in their traditional ways, meaning the whips can't get to them in the traditional ways. They're not having those private little chats in the tea rooms in Parliament. And, and it's all still relatively remote. Um, you know, not, not all of them are back in Parliament, and certainly not all of their staff. But I think what is very interesting is that the no deal faction, now numerically pretty weak in terms of the number of MPs, is able to apply huge amounts of grassroots pressure because the Leave.eu machinery is still intact. But the pro-deal vote leave faction no longer has a grassroots it can call on because it had to shut itself or chose to shut itself down after the referendum. So Leave.eu are using their database to put MPs under a huge amount of pressure for the, the, the more Farageist agenda, if you like, which, of course, is anti-refugee and, you know, the whole culture war stuff, um, not just uh, in, in favour of no deal. So there, there is a kind of disproportionate rebellion influence on the government from that side than there is from our side. So the ERG are going to get done over by an ultimate ERG, a worse ERG, ERG Indeed. Indeed. In fact, uh, Sam Coates was reporting just before we started uh, recording today that, that the ERG are, are back with a fresh attack, uh, you know, pressuring the government to tear up the withdrawal agreement. Um, but as a friend of the podcast, Hugo Guy pointed out, hmm, funny how they uh, voted for the withdrawal agreement then, isn't it? We've also got a weird crop of MPs because you've got a whole load of new MPs who owe their seats to Johnson. And you've got a whole load of old hands who, as you just are kind of used to, used to being the rebels and not used to being incumbents. Are these whippable people? I mean, or, you know, is, are the U-turns and the bad comms creating bad discipline if, uh, if the commons was a gigantic version of Eton, which of course it is? <laughs> well, I think, I think there are, you know, increasing... Uh, frustrations about the U-turns, but they know it hasn't hurt them too badly just yet. I think where they're going to see far more of it is as this incompetence becomes much, much more palpable. The government is failing us on health and it's failing us on wealth. And, and you know, they're, they're the two key things that voters always care about, but particularly when you're in a pandemic and a global recession. So, uh, you know, we've seen the coronavirus numbers worsen quite markedly this week. Again, we're about a fortnight behind some other countries that opened up and went back to school a few weeks before us that are now seeing hospital admissions rising. We're seeing that pattern 
playing out exactly the same way in the UK and testing is just an absolute mess. And we'll have all seen the stories of people in London being told they have to go to Inverness to get a test. You know, it's absolutely fast, fast, you know, fast and ridiculous. And the incompetence of that is staggering. Um, and with the furlough scheme ending, unemployment rising um, and us potentially leaving the transition period at the end of the year without a single free trade agreement in place, of course, is only going to hurt the economy even more. So I think as that incompetence builds and that incompetence narrative cuts through, and remember, we involved in politics are usually a few months ahead of those sorts of stories cutting through to the average voter, then I think we'll see more rebellions and and, and more discipline amongst those that are very fearful of holding their seats um, if this government can't turn it around as we, as we progress through the winter. Ros, the Prime Minister's questions performance last week was schadenfreude Christmas. It was the worst in living memory. And Johnson reportedly had a right go at his advisers for not preparing him properly. Uh, you know, they're being briefed to step up personal attacks on Keir Starmer. Is this a good idea when Starmer is about substance? He is, to an extent, Captain Boring, and Johnson is the personality figure. Well, it depends whether you think that you, you can get away with doing PMQs via what you, you would call optics. So whether it looks like a sort of nice, cosy Oxford Union type debate where one clear winner uh, tears a strip off the other with flashes of coruscating wit and, and amusement and all the rest, or whether you actually see PMQs as the the opportunity and the right of the opposition to demand of the government what is going on and to extract answers. And, of course, Johnson has more of a vision of the former and Starmer has more of a vision of the latter. It's key to remember that it's prime minister's questions. It's not some opportunity for Johnson to show off, which is really what he wants it to be. It ought to be Johnson answering questions and not Starmer having to defend himself against personal attacks. I find it really, really quite frightening uh, that Johnson wants to turn it into a showcase event for what he considers his own wit. But that is undoubtedly what he wants to do. I mean, we are, I mentioned earlier, we're rolling into the, you know, the new issues of the autumn that, uh, you know, accepting that COVID and Brexit are going to be huge throughout this year and next year. But, you know, we're going, we're probably going to see a COVID winter. Cases are on the rise uh, dramatically this week. Huge increases in, in positive tests this weekend, you know, 3,000 on Monday compared to 1,300 a week earlier. Given the government's failure to make lockdown comprehensible, let alone stick, you know, with the, the multiple different areas, do you think that they're going to have to go for a more blanket approach to lockdown, maybe resembling what we saw earlier in the year, accepting that you can't play whack-a-mole with this? That will be very difficult for them because that will really screw the economy at a time when it's already screwed and it will mean that lots and lots of more people get laid off. And that, of course, will be disastrous for the government as well as for many, many individuals. So they want at all costs to avoid affecting the economy. And this is why the government is now considering uh, restrictions on people meeting 
inside in their own homes, not note restrictions in pubs and restaurants. Because as we know, the government is quite comfortable with people meeting in closed spaces where COVID spreads much more easily, providing those people are also fueling the economy at the same time. Now, you can make an, an argument that in those enclosed spaces, people effectively conduct a kind of surveillance on each other and so they watch each other and they make sure that social distancing is being observed and those spaces are being cleaned and so on and so forth. You can make that argument but I would argue that people who are drunk in a pub do not um, observe these niceties and it is unlikely that landlords will be able to force them to do so. So what he's therefore going to do is to um, basically cut down on the number of people who can gather indoors in each other's homes because that will be a way of hopefully breaking chains of transmission without affecting the economy. It's very noticeable, I think, that cases have risen um, before, effectively before schools have opened. Uh, we we only I mean the the new the new surge in cases is not really attributable to schools, um, and we can we can see that because most of them only went back on Thursday or you know slightly earlier in the week at the earliest. Eat out to help out I think will be seen as a historic mistake in terms of the wrong stimulus at the wrong time, encouraging people to go out and feel safe eating indoors. If I'd been in charge of Eat Out to Help Out, which obviously (laughs) I'm nowhere near, uh, I would have restricted it to eating outside and takeaway in order to encourage shops and restaurants to basically offer more takeaway, takeaway food and to get people eating outdoors. But we didn't do that. And we are now seeing the consequences. So it's going to be a very, very hard few months, because people are going to feel very oppressed. They're going to wonder why it is they can go to the pub, but they're not allowed to meet up at home. And it's fair enough to wonder that. Now, before we move on, there is a, there is a spectre haunting Whitehall, and its name is Rishi Sunak, and it's brought <laughs> it's brought us all a Wagamama chicken, Donbury, and some cold bottles of progress. <laughs> so that's great. What's the future for you know Project Sunshine Sunak now that the the furlough scheme is ending, and we've been warned about three hundred thousand redundancies in the next couple of months? You know, can, can uh, you know uh, Rishi Brinker of Sunshine maintain that position and maintain that threat to Boris Johnson? I mean, almost certainly not. Uh, and, you know, every, every commentator under the sun has has said, you know, easy to have positive ratings when you're doling out the cash and much, much, much harder when you're having to claw it back. And, you know, he is definitely not a Keynesian at heart. He will absolutely want to be making cuts and uh, and, and keeping, you know, tax rises on his mates low, I would imagine. Um, however, I do think something that's happened in the last week is pretty interesting. And that's that the, um, the betting markets have pushed him right up to be almost level pegging with Keir to be next, Keir Starmer to be next uh, prime minister. And so that's not polling and, you know, favorability and who do people want to be the next prime minister. That's people that usually have quite good intel and lump on uh, when they think something's happening. And, and what that could be is a reaction to the news about Boris Johnson being unwell. Mm. And that, of course, would infer that the next prime minister will just be the replacement conservative leader rather than a prime minister chosen through an election. If that happens, or if Johnson's popularity ratings plummet so much that the 1922 committee do the work uh, for the opposition and, and, you know, knife the leader, then you're going to see a Gove-Sunak runoff, which will be 
about the most bloody thing. You know, Game of Thrones will have nothing uh, on that fight. And of course, Gove will have Cummings. And you'll remember that it was Gove who brought Cummings into government. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was, he was his senior special advisor uh, long before the vote leave stuff. So, again, I think we all have to just be very, very careful what we wish for. Um, but I do think that Sunak would face quite a difficult challenge um, within his own party membership to beat Michael Gove. Alien versus Predator all over again. Indeed. Well, before we move on, I just wanted to... There's one little personality bit of Johnson that popped out last week that made my jaw drop. I don't know if you saw him when he was talking to the school kids about their... Uh, you know, their future and so forth. This room of of utterly confused, blank-faced children who had no idea what this this waffling bag of laundry was saying to them. But at one point, Johnson quoted Nigel Molesworth. You know, Nigel Molesworth, the schoolboy of the 1950s, back in the jug again, whiz for atoms, a parody of a 1950s schoolboy. And Johnson says, when the teachers are asking you why you don't know the supine stem of confitior, the papers took this as a kind of a, an obscure bit of Latin, but it was taken from Molesworth. It's like it's like you know Chris Packham quoting Manic Street Preachers songs on Spring Watch, and it made me think your performance here is entirely directed towards your you know your your, your peers who are going to snigger and say, look, he got he got a bit of this kind of Etonian parody into you know onto the news, and the news didn't spot it. Is this what's driving his his, his his governance, you know, that a fundamental unseriousness? You know, I, I can sort of, as, as uh, Nomi said earlier, I can just show off and it's going to work. It must be very hard. It must be very hard for Johnson um, to have realised that he totally lacks any of the inspirational qualities of his hero, Winston Churchill. Now, it is true that Johnson considered himself a leader for the good times, as Naomi was was saying earlier, but he also considered himself a potential wartime leader. And in his biography of Churchill and his whole demeanour, you can see that he is yearning to be the man who leads us out of the wilderness and wins the great war against Europe that he's that he helped start. But he has failed. He is no good at being inspirational. He is good at being sort of robustly cheerful. But he doesn't have that quality of lifting up people's, um, not just people's mood, but in inspiring them. And that must be, that must really hurt. And I think if he is thinking about going, um, and if as Nomi says, perhaps he's suffering from long COVID and he's struggling physically and mentally to keep up. I think it might be because of that. And I suspect that deep down in Johnson, there's a great deal of distress at the moment and a great deal of fear that he is trying to conceal. I think you're unfair. He has inspired some people. He's inspired us to do this. We're, We're feeling very inspired. Just before we move on, what what are the bets of him still of him leading the Tories into election twenty twenty four then? Nina, would you bet on Johnson running that one? You know what? I would not put it past him and I would not put it past the Conservatives, even though you hear about rumblings in the back benches and given how catastrophically they have bungled the response to COVID, not only that, but Brexit, you'd imagine, you know, he'd be on his way out now. And yet Nobody is actually seriously thinking about ousting him. Um, He spent his whole lifetime wanting to become leader. And what should already be abundantly clear is that he is 
not a very good leader in terms of actually competently governing the country. So I think if he does go into 2024, given that long-term strategy and careful governance is not going to be the pillars of his leadership, there's only one way this works. In the absence of strategy and long-term policy to govern, you need to have enemies. So Unfortunately, if he does run again, I think the only way this can happen is by through the amping up of the rhetoric of enmity, whether that is, you know, the EU or the kind of polarized partisan culture wars, which are starting to take a hold in this country, just like in the US. So he may, I think, run again in 2024. And if so, only on the back of this narrative that is already being ingrained. Ros, would you bet on it? No. I okay. think he's doomed. Hooray! <laughs> Noni, cast in vote. Is he running or isn't he? No. Now, few what a scorcher should we fear the climate effects of the super solar away sun. Over the weekend, climate change group Extinction Rebellion were accused of stifling free speech as they blockaded the presses of Murdoch-owned newspapers, citing their issues with reporting climate stories. Environment Secretary George Eustace said the group undermined their cause through their actions. Keir Starmer described the blockade as an attack on the cornerstone of democracy. Naomi, there was pretty strong backlash against what XR did at the weekend. Was this really the attack on free speech that people said it was? Look, uh, I did like the 200th episode of Romaniacs and you asked us to talk about the big issues of the future that we care about. And I did a very, very long uh, rant about, you know, we've got to look at every political and economic decision we make through the lens of climate change. So there is no denying that I am 100% on the side of Extinction Rebellion in terms of what they want to achieve. That is very different from agreeing with all of the means uh, that that they are employing to achieve it. But that said, you know, I'm not going to take it from Boris Johnson and, and his regime when they, you know, talk about shutting down a free press when this is a government that has excluded all sorts of journalists that don't agree with it from uh, their briefings who advise ministers not to or ban ministers from going on programs like today. So uh, I'm not going to take it from them. But would I have would I have advised Extinction Rebellion to do that? Almost certainly not. Uh, And I think it's, you know, kind of similar to the stories that we saw last year when they were trying to take over commuter trains and, and block people from getting to work in a, a pretty environmentally friendly way. Um, I think it probably didn't do their cause um, as, as much, uh, uh, you know, as good as they would have hoped it would have done. Um, but uh, I'm certainly not going to take any criticism from Boris Johnson over it. Yeah, I actually disagree with Naomi a bit on, on this one, not in terms of the brightness of Extinction Rebellion's cause, um, absolutely. But I think that to talk of this as a shutdown of freedom of speech is just ludicrous um, exaggeration. It's, it's, it's just crazy hyperbole. We're talking about one day when they blockaded a print plant. This is not cutting down free, uh, shutting down freedom of speech. This is disrupting the distribution of newspapers, which are also available online for one day. And I think we saw some very horrified reactions from, from journalists who naturally have a very, uh, very big following and are keen to put their point across. But when you compare what is going on in Hungary, for example, and the way in which the freedom of the press has been shut down there with this action. It's just not remotely comparable. Ros, I, I, I do agree completely. I think, I think 
I think my my frustra- it's a frustration more than anything. Um, last month, they also uh, threw pink paint all over the party headquarters, including the Tories. And I happened to be cycling past the Tory HQ shortly after it happened. And they put up a, a poster on the side of the building that, that was quite sort of uh, aggressive. And it, I think at one point it said something like, we want your heads on spikes. And so it was inciting, you know, violence and all the rest of it. And the police presence at the uh, Extinction Rebellion protests um, last week was in, you know, it was totally disproportionate to the numbers of people that were there. But it was in reaction to the fact that there had basically been this threat of, you know, harm to life from people attached to the Extinction Rebellion cause. And so from my perspective, it it isn't, I, I agree with you, of course, it is not a major shutdown of freedom of speech and all of that, and you know, ridiculous hyperbolic response to it. But it will make it harder for all of us that campaign to do so without having, you know, an overbearing police presence and a ridiculous, you know, reaction from the media. Well, there are there are moves supposedly afoot to classify XR as an organised crime group, and and you look at it and you just think you have hand that as a campaigning organisation, Extinction Rebellion is is not centralised. It's it's completely decentralised, and whoever decided that these were were uh, you know were sensible actions or worthwhile actions to take. I've kind of handed a whole load of, you know, kind of free hits, as it were, to, to, to the to the people who oppose them. It, you know, the fact that there is no centralised leadership means that pretty much anybody can do pretty much anything under the umbrella of Extinction Rebellion. And then anybody who says that they are sympathetic to the aims of the organization is is kind of roped into that i mean ross i mean as 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 a model of campaigning is this workable or is it is it kind of destined to fall apart or be dragged apart by by multiple people pulling in different directions i think it's workable i think it's based fundamentally around stunts um, and stunts that are designed to get as much attention as possible and to get as many people as possible talking about them. And in that aim, it is succeeding because, you know, lovely though it is to have a group dance outside Buckingham Palace, uh, if you ask people what they were talking about, whether it was that or the shut, uh, or blockading print plants, um, the answer is clear. The idea that it's an organised crime group is obviously for the birds. I mean, legally, it doesn't fulfil that definition. An organised crime group has to be organised to carry on criminal activities, mm. which it clearly is not is not its purpose. What we really should worry about more in terms of the government cracking down on these kind of protests is the new regulations that Man- Matt Hancock... Matt- Pat Mancock has, um, <laughs> has signed into law in the last few days with very little attention, need I say it, from a press that wants to be free, um, which impose a huge fine, £10,000 on large gatherings of people. Previously, there was a fine, it was smaller. Now the regulations have been tightened without any parliamentary debate or discussion. Purely these these uh, regulations that can be signed off because we are in an emergency period, according to the law, and it will make it very difficult to have large gatherings of any kind uh, by any organisation that aren't fully, as it's put, as COVID secure. And I think that is the most serious threat to uh, public assembly and, and and public protest that we are currently seeing. Mm. Just to sort of look a little bit deeper into what XR are about and, and their aims, that 
you know, they, they, they definitely throw the ball as far down the pitch as they possibly can. They're asking for zero carbon by 2025. And most economic modeling insists that that would, would crash the world economy with consequences in the medium term as dire as, uh, as anything you could expect in the longer term for, for, for climate change. And the kind of counter that the, the two, side, two sides of the argument are, well, at least they're getting the uh, issue onto the agenda versus by asking for such extreme and unreachable things, they are actually damaging the cause, if you see what I mean. People look at it and it looks completely unreasonable. Do you think that is a valid criticism of Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, it, it's re- it's a reasonable uh, criticism, but that depends whether you're in a pre-COVID mindset, I think. Mm. What we've actually seen is governments themselves choosing to crash the global economy in the last six months in order to reduce the spread of COVID. I mean, it would have been crashed to a large extent anyway because of the measures people p- uh, took independently of the government. But that has been done deliberately and the scale of the mobilization economic mobilization that we've seen in order to try and defeat covid has been enormous and i think things are starting to look very different in the i won't say post covid era because we're definitely not post covid we're very much still in the middle of it things that previously didn't seem possible didn't seem thinkable are now more thinkable the question is what it will take to encourage people to act in the way that they have felt able to do uh, as a result of COVID and to transfer that sense of urgency to the climate crisis. Nina, the print press is no longer the, the, the power that it was. And in a, in a lot of respects, the, the kind of furore about preventing the Saturday Times from getting printed, it's a bit like, uh, you know, the, you know, it's not like they turned off the internet, for instance. Um, do we do we see the print press as as more perhaps more totemic than uh, that it that it really is in terms of power? Look, I my view on this is that actually it is a big deal um, because obviously there is a spectrum when it comes to talking about free press. So whilst the blockade is obviously not what is happening in Hungary or Belarus, it is still um, I think something that should be taken as not lightly. So I don't think that it is it is an effective way to campaign. And that's why I actually agree with Naomi when she says, you know, we condemn Johnson and Co for kind of standing up as though they're the bastions of the free press and condemning XR's action when actually they do the same. So what's good for the gander is good for the goose. And I think you have to apply that universally across the spectrum if you actually want to talk about protecting a free press. So that I think you know, action on um, blockading a newspaper is just as bad as Johnson banning certain kind of outlets or journalists from his briefings. So I think if you believe in the principle of a free press, you have to apply it universally. I think it's also really ironic, given that they did this blockade saying that it was kind of for Murdoch's anti-climate-denying newspapers. And undeniably, there are many climate-denying newspapers in Murdoch's press, but the Times is certainly not one of them. Um, In fact, one of their leaders last year lauded the aims of Extinction Rebellion, if arguing that the way in which the campaign is not effective. And I think that's where I come down on XR. I laud the aims, but I don't think that the means are necessarily very effective. I think they should look for allies, not enemies. If you want to look at this 
balance of are they moving the Overton window versus are they alienating? So to detract from the cause, I think perhaps it is more the latter rather than the former, because I don't think climate change should become a partisan issue. And unfortunately, I feel as though some of these stunts, because they are stunts, risk making it into that. And um, that's that's how, why I think perhaps the action against the papers was one that can backfire. Finally, our old friend Bias on the BBC is back with a story in the Daily Telegraph, never suggesting that some satirical shows could be cancelled if they fail to address perceived political bias. This is a serious problem. As friend of the show Rory Bremner tweeted, if it weren't for all these left-wing comedians and presenters on the BBC telling us what to think, we'd have won the Brexit vote, be leaving Europe and have a proper Conservative government instead of the mess we're in now. Well said, Rory. New Director General Tim Davey, a Conservative, dismissed these claims as nonsense, but he did say he wanted to hear a wider variety of viewpoints on air, which might suggest more pro-Conservative, pro-Brexit gags. Ross, what's happened here? Is this just the Telegraph with its uh, daily diet of find a way to kick the BBC out of nothing? Uh, you've got to bear in mind that a lot of political, co- uh, the majority of political comedy is listened to uh, and watched by middle class people, um, and inevitably some of them telegraph readers. It's not something which very much bothers, I think, people outside that demographic. But if you're the kind of person who switches on Radio 4 routinely, then it perhaps, and you're on the right, then perhaps it is going to bother you. I doubt that it's going to trouble someone who doesn't. And yet it does. it is a staple of the Star and the Express, lefty comics, lefty lovies, complaining about things that, as you say, they don't actually themselves listen to. But the BBC does have a duty to serve everybody and... As you say, it's it's comic apple does have quite a middle middle class bias. Isn't this something that Tim Davy, well it might not necessarily be for the kind of people who are listening to the Bunker podcast, he has to address this. Uh, there, was, there was an interesting piece by uh, Andrew Watts uh, this week on Unheard, uh, the website, which I don't always agree with, but it was very, he, he's a former right-wing comic and he was writing, he was made, made a couple of very good points about politics and comedy. And one is that people who appear on Radio 4, on their quiz shows and so on, usually have done their time in stand-up. And in stand-up, when you're in front of an audience, it's lefty jokes that get the audience response. You're not going to, because of the the kind of audience that comes along, you don't get much of a positive reaction if you start making right-wing, right-wing jokes. So that means that you've got a feed-in, if you like, of people with that kind of background, and that makes them more more lefty. And the other point he made, which I hadn't, hadn't occurred to me at all, was that if you're a conservative with a capital C, and a small c. You don't necessarily find politics funny because you're not out to change stuff and you're not constantly engaged with what's going on in the quite the same way as people on the left. You fundamentally think that the status quo is the most desirable state of affairs. And that's why I think that's one of the reasons why it's going to be very difficult to bring in more right-wing comedians. But you, there is a, you know, an argument. Might not necessarily agree. But there's an argument that you know the left is now an establishment, and there are things within establishments that you can make mock of. You could do a parody of Romaniacs, and it would be quite funny. I should imagine. You know, us, us lot moaning about our lack of access to the fine cheeses that we like. You could also parody Spiked. You know, the fake progressives of Spiked. Yeah, Twitter does does this daily. There's material out there, isn't there? Is is comedy 
perhaps guilty of not, uh, you know, looking for the humour on its own side. I don't think the left is the establishment at the moment. I think mm. far from it. I think the right is very much the establishment. And so you might you might say that culturally it's the establishment. But since you're talking about politics, politically, it is the right that is very much in charge at the moment. Hmm. Well, it is an establishment, though, isn't it? There are there are uh, kind of norms, and there are big figures, and there are eminently parodyable, if that's even a word, people out there on the left. It just seems to be a big hole in the uh, you know in, in the menu. Naomi, who exactly are these right wing comedians to step into the breach? And we can't resuscitate Bernard Manning, <laughs> can we? He's uh, <laughs> I mean, no bloody longer. Roy Chubby Brown, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's just, it, it doesn't bear thinking about because uh, Ross is right. You know, comedy works when you kick up. Mm. That's what's funny. That, that That's the whole, typically the whole construct of comedy, unless you are a sadist or, you know, some kind of incredibly awful person who takes pleasure from kicking down. Um, and for the vast majority of the 20th century, and it's looking increasingly likely the 21st century, the right have been in power. And so, you know, yes, there may be an establishment of, of the left in some quarters, but the extent to which they have much, if any, significant hard power is negligible and has been for m- most of our lives. So it, it, it's just simply not funny. And And I think... On the point of, um, well, you could easily pastiche us and others. I think that's true. And I think we would find it quite funny too. Mm. You know, I I think the left has a a sense of humour about itself that perhaps some on the right don't. And that's to to Rose's point as well, that they just don't find it funny because this is the serious serious role of governing and, 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 you know. Uh, keeping the fabric of society together it's not something to be mocked so yeah I I mean I just sort of take the view that um, right-wing comedy is rarely funny because it is poking fun at the wrong people rather than those that it should be taking the piss out of which which obviously the left is able to do better. I think private side do a great do a great job of taking the piss out of both sides, and I think that's um, that shows that somehow in the written form it's much easier to be to to be funny on the right. Uh, I don't know quite why it's so much more difficult if you're a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I mean, because private the best things in private eye are definitely from the message boards, and it's grim up North London which more or less describes my life. And I love it. It's hilarious. And yet from comedy from the right, in general, outside of private life, what you tend to get is Titania McGrath doing the same unfunny joke over and over again about how, you know, I identify as a sheepdog. Isn't that hilarious? It's the same gag. Do you know what I mean? Nina, as as somebody born outside the UK, does the British sense of humour, does it make sense to you? Because you're as a, as a, a person from the outside. Oh, absolutely. Um, Probably one of the reasons I ended up in the UK. I mean, if you get (laughs) humor, and let me tell you, it is one of your best cultural exports of people around the world look at British comedy and they they love it. And that's for me as, you know, a half German. So somebody who has no sense of humor, Mm. of course. Um, You've got an excellent sense of humor. Don't be silly. (laughs) You need one living here. Yeah, absolutely. No, we we love the British sense of humor, which and you guys are so funny. I mean, I, I should say we now that I'm a Brit myself. 
mm-hmm. we're so funny. We should we should we should um, embrace our comedy instead of wondering about you know whether our comedians are left wing or right wing. It's one of our great exports. Mm. Just to wrap it up, there, this we have got supposedly coming up GB News, mm. the British Fox News coming soon, and it was described as possibly going to follow the talk radio model of getting around balance by having a handful of token lefties in amongst the Nigel Farages and the and the Nick Ferraris and so on. Um, just, what should we expect from that, Nina? Do you think it's it's likely to happen? And should we get our CVs in as token progressives? Oh, yeah. Um, look, I think it's just, it is probably likely to happen. And I think it is, again, kind of some touches upon some of the themes that I explore in my book, which is the dangers or the, one of the bigger problems of our information ecosystem. And part of the way in which this is pull, playing out is the increasing partisanship in public life and political debate. And unfortunately, when media starts to profit from this increasing partisanship, you know, it becomes a raison d'etre of media outlets. You see it to a much greater extent already in the US, and it's probably going to be imported here to the UK. Then there's less chance of bridging that divide because all the partisan media outlets are going to have a vested interest in forcing the polarizing kind of narratives that um, are being entrenched into public life. So it's a big question. If, if, if truth or balance or the pursuit of truth no longer matter, then the only thing that matters is the narrative. And I think that's a bigger question for our times. You know, will all media be just seen as partisan? And can there be any kind of bridging of the gap? Bunker TV, launching on a TV near you very soon. And that is the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. What has been freeing their mind from the misery of the news headlines this week? Naomi, what's your diversion of choice? Well, obviously, I'm ploughing through Ian Dodd's House for a Liberal, <laughs> available in all good bookshops. Um, but I've also, um, I don't really know how I missed it at the time, but I've been watching um, the Northern Irish TV drama, um, The Fall, with Gillian Anderson and Jamie Dornan. I missed it at the time, and I'm not really sure why, but it's all available on Netflix now. So I've hoovered up all three seasons of that. Um, and it just sort of, you know, took took me back to my days in Belfast, because almost every scene is set in kind of misty rain, and it's sort of got that Scandi Noir vibe but obviously with um, lovely Northern Irish accents with the exception of Gillian Anderson so yeah that's that's been good escapism and I'd recommend it to anyone. I was so depressed that it, that it didn't have Marky e. Smith in it but you know that's me not reading the blurb <laughs> properly. Nina what's your uh, escape route from the wonderful and frightening world of politics? <laughs> I've just started watching the new series of Chef's Table now on, on Netflix and it's all about barbecue so i've watched started watching the first episode and it is amazing there it's all about a 85 year old barbecue pit master her name is tootsie tomanez and it is as warm and texan and southern kind of um warmth as you can imagine i really recommend it fantastic ross how about you what's freeing your brain well late to this as ever but i'm now watching um, Mrs. America for the second time because I enjoyed it so much the first time that I just decided to start all over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, uh, I suppose also, yes, um, well, I couldn't go to France this summer, of course, because they brought in a quarantine 14 hours before I was due to leave. Um, so instead, I booked a short break in a youth hostel, which I 
hadn't done for a long time. In fact, I hadn't done since I was actually employed in a youth hostel as a student um, a long, long time ago. And it was it was really cool. I really enjoyed staying in the youth hostel. It was great. Um, and you know what? I'm going to do some more youth hosteling as soon as I get the chance. So, you know, watch this space. Amazing. Youth hosteling with Roz Taylor, our new spin-off series. This fantastic bit of Roz, bit of Roz origin story there. That I don't think anybody was expecting. Yeah. What, what about you, Andrew? What have you been escaping Me? from? Uh, I, well, I've I've been escaping by being out of the country. I went to, I went to Turkey for a week, which is uh, which is great. But my my actual mind escape route is, uh, and I may well have mentioned this on the show previously. Battlestar Galactica is on BBC iPlayer now. The great political drama. It just happens to happen in space with robots rather <laughs> than humans. Battlestar Galactica is essentially the West Wing in space. It is a political drama. It's about leadership. It's about the military versus the uh, civil authorities. It's also what do you do after the end of the world? I'm sure listeners will know that it's about what's left of the human race, all 50,000 of them fleeing into space after all of the human worlds have been destroyed by the Cylons. <laughs> terrifying robots great stuff but what it really it's it's a philosophical uh space opera with with a uh, strong political overtones it's about what you're willing to do to survive uh, what and this obviously was made in the early 2000s and a huge part of it is um what is justified if you're fighting for your freedom and they're making the show at the same time that uh you know islamist terrorism is a huge issue and america is in um, afghanistan and the, the the sheer boldness of making a show where essentially you're telling the story from the point of view of people who are willing to become suicide bombers in that political environment, I thought was incredible. And it's all on iPlayer right now. So watch that. And in a way, actually, it doesn't fulfill the brief, does it? Because it's not an ex- escape route from politics at all. <laughs> I right was going to say. <laughs> right back into politics. Yeah, so sorry about that. But anyway, that's what I'm that's what I'm recommending. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our panel, Naomi Smith. Thank you very much for having me. Nina Schick. Great to be here. And Ross Taylor. Fit as a butcher's dog as ever. Just as well since there are no COVID tests. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon and you can get into our Zoom, which is happening on Thursday, 24th of September at 8pm. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out all about that. And if you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Ian Innes, John Barber and someone who just calls themselves Anonymous, so I reckon that's probably Dominic Cummings. Thanks, Dom. Thanks and best wishes from me to Kieran Slattery, James McGregor and Simon Barker. From me, it's hello to Michael Ingleston, Kagdas Kalazia and Kate Smith. And a massive shout out and big up from me to Richard Broadley, James Harvey and William Lowry. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Nina Schick, Naomi Smith and Ross Taylor. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.